0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3, and we are closing out our discussion on higher education. I do want to thank Dr. Michael Couch II and Bezel Taylor for joining us and kicking things off strong, and we're going to continue doing that on today's episode. Now, wherever you go to school, if there's a college team, we typically separate athletes from the rest of campus society, if you will, They kind of exist on their own turf, their own platform. And this may not be true for everyone, but I would say it was definitely true for, for me. There was a certain area of campus that was dedicated to student athletes and they were always found in that space. And for some reason, we tend to put them on a pedestal when it comes to some of the things that we experience as college students. But what we quickly remind ourselves is that they are college students too. And so that anything that you would think of as an inequity or a disparity with any other student is also likely with the student athlete. And so today we're going to hear from the soon to be Dr. Marcus R. Dexter who has spent much of his career and much of his life actually being a student athlete advocating in spaces to ensure that athletes have what they need as they continue to develop their identity and so i'm excited to introduce you all to my good brother marcus dexter
1: wow i'm honored and privileged thank you good brother um Hello everyone again. My name is Marcus Dexter. Um, I socially go by Dex though, something that's followed me since uh, I competed in college track and field. And so a lot of my teammates to this day still call me Dex, but uh, my family knows me as Mooks. Yes, like do the right thing. It's honor and privilege of being on this podcast. Um, I am born and raised in Philadelphia. Uh, South Philly to be exact. No, not West Philly. And I didn't necessarily play in the playgrounds. It was a little bit of everywhere. Um, South Philly is rich in culture and diversity, and so I got a chance to explore all that. Um, I went to Rider University before transferring to uh, the institution I graduated from, from, undergrad, Robert Morris University, right outside of Pittsburgh, not the one in sh- near Chicago. Um, and from there, I went directly to my master's program um, at the University of Georgia, where I currently am now pursuing my doctorate degree in kinesiology with a specialization in sport management and policy um let's see what else do i want to know i'll tell you my whole life story <laughs> i love talking
0: so speaking of philly right so i was out there well before COVID. this was last mm-hmm. year i got called out to do some facilitation and i was like down the street from temple i think and oh. <laughs> and so I, I asked the guy at the front desk because i am like this is my first time in philadelphia my dad wants me to go try a cheesesteak. Uh, I should have <laughs> known it was this question. Yep. So I went to Ishkabibble. Okay. Right
1: <laughs> Whoever that person is has much love and respect for me. So I uh, get the questions going. So it really does depend on what neighborhood you're from. Um, each neighborhood, it's almost like New York City. Uh, I really feel like Philly, we're kind of like a smaller version of New York City in each kind of area, it's like its own borough, for sure. So my favorites are, I always tell people, if you're a tourist, no offense to those who like it, but Pat's, no, Um, I'm not going to say what I normally say because I don't want to disrespect the chain, but nah, Pat's ain't it for me. (laughs) Jim's, if you're a tourist, cool, but I don't do cheese Whiz, Um, again, I'm from South Philly, so I grew up around a lot of Italians, and so that's just sacrilege right there. but Bible staple, I grew up um, half of my, I guess you can say, adolescence in um, closer to Center City. I'm originally from Point Breeze, Philly, so those who are familiar with Philly, uh, they probably are like, ooh. <laughs> and Ishka Bibble's right on South Street is the place with a gremlin, the drink.
0: I had a gremlin. Some, it was, yes, it was some light
1: ice, some, <laughs> some light ice. You can't get too much ice. You don't get as much. Um, but also, if you get down a little bit closer, deeper in South Philly towards um, Second Street, going down near the movie theater, I love Gooey Louie's. It's this random little like delicatessen and all, but the amount of meat you get and their chicken cheese stick is so good. And so, again, it, it really depends what part of the city you're from, where you grew up. But, yes, Iska Bibbles, as a quote-unquote tourist, as we'll say, or a visitor, Iska Bibbles is it. Um, you'll get a very close rendition of a, um, as, as it's kind of called, a Philadelphia style cheesesteak. Just don't go to Philly asking for a Philly cheesesteak. For anyone listening, it's a cheesesteak. You're in Philly, so don't ask for a Philly cheesesteak because it's just redundant.
0: Call it by his name. So, sorry to, to distract here, but I, I had to make sure I got that out. No, I, I'm,
1: I'm, that's a, that is in, in a pretzel. You got to go to, yes, a cheesesteak, but a lot of people kind of forget. South Philly pretzels are what's it. You haven't had a true pretzel until you had a South Philly pretzel. And so, down towards the um, stadiums and all that, I can't remember. I think they have some other stores across, but like Oregon Ave, like a South Philly pretzel co. Getting a, a, a pretzel, you can get it with, now that's the only thing I'll eat with cheese with. South Philly pretzels or a pizza pretzel. Oh, see, you they making me want to go home. But yes, cheese steaks and pretzels um, and water ice. Not water ice, water ice. Water ice. Rita's is good, but it's, there are a couple of places. But you go to Philly for some water ice
0: and a hoagie. And a hoagie, Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of the research and the work that you're doing around student-athletes. How did that become an interest? I know that you were an athlete as well but how did you make that connection from playing on the field to supporting those who are on the field
1: well that's a great question and so um i think back i guess you can say the impetus from it came as you said from being an athlete um i didn't get a chance to really compete in organized or engage in organized sport until high school um didn't do football i mean i went to an art school i went to meredith's uh william meredith school in south philly and so up until fifth grade you had all the arts um throughout your week and so when i got to high school i went to central high school and was like you know didn't realize the true um significance of going to central outside of academically but in athletically um you know started competing track and field my aunt barbara my dad's sister was a track and field athlete. She didn't get a chance to compete collegiately because she got pregnant with her oldest daughter. Um, my cousin Dina is an like older sister to me, and so learning those stories and engaging in sport and trying to understanding it. Central, for those who don't know, back in the day was very much so diverse. Um, it's shifted some, and but we're working on that as Black alumni. Um, it I had thirty percent of the school was Black, thirty percent or so was white, thirty percent. Um, was Asian, I don't want to say other, but of more ethnic diverse um, backgrounds. And so in my classroom, I saw myself, but I saw um, the opposites. so to say I saw white, and everything in between. And so that, and being enriched in that culture, really had an impact on who I am today. And, you know, track was great. And I wanted to be, my freshman year, I asked my coach, hey, how do, what is this, what do you go to school for? And he told me about kinesiology, and that's kind of how traditionally coaching, but there are other ways. For me, even though I wanted to be an astrophysicist, after that, I kind of realized, you know, business is kind of the way to go. Um, so that's when I went to writer on a track scholarship. I quickly realized finance was not the way to go for me. Um, <laughs> I recognized that I'd have to be sitting and being a, a pencil pusher, so to say, for about a good five to ten years. And I didn't want that. I, I didn't want to just be sitting at a desk. Um. You know even though i mentioned up through junior year i wanted to be an astrophysicist i wanted to discover a planet an object and name it after people um i just was really intrigued with the sciences and i still am a trekkie to this day um love science fiction and so my senior year i was like you know what you know this was 2000 until my age here but 2003 and everything then was all about business and making money to be successful and so i was like all right well all right, maybe I'll ride this wave. I'm going to go to school for finance because I want to be, I'll do an international investment banking or something like that. I'll, you know, live over in Europe, wear these like Italian suits, make all this money, travel the world and just be great. Yeah, nah. Um, (laughs) Things didn't go well Um, athletically at Ryder. Love the place, love my teammates, much respect for the coaches, but it just wound up not being the place for me more academically. I realized, you know, I wanted to do sport management. I wanted to do coaching. Um, And so I knew collegiately to be a head coach um, and to be successful. And the trend within intercollegiate athletics is that head coaches were more administrators. And so having a strong background in business because I realized my passion for coaching, um, that was what I needed. I didn't necessarily need to go to school to learn how to coach, per se. Um, I needed to understand how can I manage a team. And so I recognized that really early on. And so I went to Robert Morris University, which recruited me and recruited me a little bit late. But I had a good connection with the coach. And so I uh, did um, pursue a Bachelor's in Science and Business Administration with a concentration in sport management. And so kind of moving forward through there, interesting experiences. That was the first time I, I always tell people, being at Robert Morris especially, that was really the first time I realized I was Black in a white world. Um, and what I mean by that is that's the first time Ryder was a little bit more diverse, but at uh, Robert Morris and Moon Township, PA, and Coriopolis, um, as you can imagine, Western PA, the former capital of KKK, um, you know, it's very much so dreary and white. And I kind of realized my blackness through there. I realized I was a, a, a black American, so to say, a black individual surrounded by a lot of whites. Um, And so like all of the black athletes, especially my teammates, we rallied together. Um, It just was natural for us. Um, And so that was where it kind of started, this interest in racial identity development, which I can name now, I couldn't name it then. And really kind of what are the experiences like for various groups and those who have different identities. And so fast forward, graduated, went to University of Georgia, was able to volunteer coach, Um, amazing experience. The coaches are still like mentors and friends to this day. And first day of my master's, um, go to this class and I see on there, it's social aspects of sport. Didn't really know what that really was talking about. I'm thinking it's more of like literally social interaction, so to say, wasn't quite sure. And here comes this tall, stout, dark-skinned black man, Dr. Billy Hawkins, came in, who was kind of, who's like a quiet force, because he doesn't really talk as loud, kind of sounds a little bit ish, like Barry White, just not as, as deep, and going through this course, that's the first time I really realized, one, it's the first time outside of math teachers, because I've had black male math teachers, the first time I had a black male teacher outside of math. And so that was powerful for me. I was quickly intrigued. I came to Georgia majoring in sport management only because I was switching to biomechanics to pursue coaching um, to improve my my craft. And here comes Billy Hawkins, Dr. Billy Hawkins. And we're talking about these issues um, in sport sociology, especially at this point, that's when the dress code ruling was affecting the NBA and talking about those issues. And so... That's when I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do. I know you can study sports in this way. I'm going to switch. Change my major to thesis track, um, sports studies, I'm going to pursue this, probably, and then go fulfill this dream that the Black faculty in my undergrad had um which of pursuing a doctorate. Um, and one of our good frat brothers, who's now part of Chapter Invisible, Dr. Rex Crawley, who a lot of my journey educationally is dedicated to him because he's one of the first people who really said, I, you're gonna get a doctorate, him and his wife, uh, was an AKA, and so they poured into me. And so that's really what the foundation of it was, was Dr. Billy Hawkins and seeing him, um, being reflected through him in his classroom, understanding you can tackle these issues. And really the catalyst was coming towards now in my research and where I am today pursuing a doctorate, um, there's a lot of things going on in higher ed. Um, and coaching and the athletic world is no different and just had some real negative experiences navigating that and and more in a sense of just not just how I was treated but just athletes coming to school not understanding that you need a plan b I mean I went I was coaching at SUNY Cortland and you know a lot of the stellar athletes are from New York City and there, as we know, there are a lot of educational barriers and just barriers in general that hinder them from being as successful as they can be. And so, unfortunately, I was like, this is a division three institution. The likelihood of you going pro is very, very low. And so I really wanted to understand this and I kept putting it off and kept putting it off. And here comes uh, faculty, you know, Eric Gardner's death happened. And wanting me and another black male colleague who's a basketball coach, wanted us to give a, a kind of like a brown bag lunch seminar talk on student athletes' perspectives on the killing of Eric Gardner and preparing for that helped me realize what that void I was feeling. I wasn't intellectually stimulated by coaching anymore. And my colleague, another black male that I mentioned, he was like, "Think, do it, go back to school. Like I told him, like, this is what I've been missing. I think I'm going to do it. And so at the Spring of twenty fifteen, I told the AD my, and uh, eventually I told the head coach because I didn't, we were about to go to nationals. To my idea, at the end of this year, that my contract obligations I'm going to resign, and that really was the beginning of this new journey that I'm on.
0: So, student athlete development, right? So, yes. What What does that mean? Because when you, when you think about, <laughs> I know it's loaded. When. Someone who hasn't played sports, like, so for myself, I never played an organized sports. It was always recreational. Mm -hmm. What does that development mean? What role does lived experiences play? Could you just break it down for us?
1: Yeah, so to be quite transparent, it's still being figured out. Um, there are systems in place, and I'll, I'll kind of get more to answering, but there are systems in place within intercollegiate athletics to provide what's called life skills. Um, each in the institution has some sort of, it used to be CHAMPS life skills, but it's just life skills now, um, where there are there's programming put together and a specific um, person, staff member, who's in charge of helping athletes develop more holistically, providing these opportunities for them to delve into certain opportunities to understand themselves. I just imagine one person or even three people um, for a whole athletic department and to address all the issues and things and lived experiences and stuff is really difficult. And so the term athlete development or student athlete development, the reason why I mentioned it before is, you must, it is loaded because there are, aspects of it which we talk about athlete development depends on the context and so for some because there are athlete development specialists and there's a new emerging field but in the way people talk about it, it's not always the same and so there is much more need now as we see um it's always say about sport as a, as a microcosm society so whatever's going on throughout society at large is definitely happening within the athletic realm um, is definitely being reflected. And so there is a, a need, desire, and even passion, many of us are passionate about, how can we help these individuals better understand who they are? Some argue that it's not part of their job. Some argue that institution at whole is kind of already doing that. But we understand too that these individuals, they're nice and clean employees, it can be reflected and personally we don't want them to be employees that would be the worst thing ever um because then you're subject to these um employee labor laws and all of this stuff and it just would change the nature of sports we may i mean if you get into the pay-for-play cool but ooh, that's a whole other topic but athlete development broadly um we have to provide opportunities again for them to better understand themselves as complex and sexual individuals However, what's definitely becoming much more apparent is that we need to actually train those in power for that, meaning coaches have to be able to understand what is this? What does it mean if most of the coaches are white and more likely white males? Well, now you've got a white male who has to understand racial identity development or gender aspects or sexuality, um, understanding some of the systemic and historic barriers that exist. And so... It's tough. It's going to be a lot, but that's kind of the place we're at right now. And so athlete development, yeah, there's, it's beyond anything beyond the physical training. Um, coaches are, most of them have training certifications. Um, coaching profession actually, and collegiately, is just now within the past decade moving more towards um, certifications and standardization of the profession. But a lot of that need to add in the psychological aspects, sports psychology itself is more performance-based. Some identity development, more of the counseling, psychology and social work is actually the areas in which we see more progress happening. And these institutions needing to bring in these health professionals outside of physical health and bring in like social workers, um, psychologists in to support athletes um, in their non-physical
0: development one of the things that it sounds like there's at least some gaps in the the theory behind things like you realize that there are certain developmental milestones that you would see in athletes when it comes to just training when it comes to their sporting but there's other pieces that we're, we're missing as far as um, academia goes
1: well it's not standardized and the reason why i say that was a meditation is because we have yet and i always bring this and i'll get on my soapbox in the sense we have yet to recognize the professional athlete as an actual profession we kind of accepted that these are celebrities and they're actual they have this is their this is their uh means of employment you know, they're gainfully employed if they're a professional athlete in some shape or form, so to say. But yet it's also, if that's the case, it's one of the only professions in which higher education does not prepare them to be um, successful in. We don't have, we have sport management, but we don't have any sort of um, somewhat athlete. We have, we're actually getting more now athlete development majors or concentration certificates. It's starting to grow-ish. But we aren't preparing them. If I'm if I want to be a professional athlete, no matter how good i me, I mean, it's just like being an accountant. You can major in accounting. You may not necessarily be good, and it may not be the major you stick with. But that's what you want to do. But there's actually a major for that. There's curriculum. We don't have that for professional athlete or athletes. Period. If, if being an athlete is what you want to do, well, where's the? How can I major in that? It's not sport management per se. But we do have the coursework and curriculum within institutions to cultivate one. Um, because a lot of it's gonna to have to be, especially at the higher levels, um, public speaking, being able to read contracts, um, negotiating, so on and so forth. And so that's why I said, it's like, it's, it's unique. It's just like, in a sense too, even sport management, what encompasses sport management as a whole is not truly really what the field is. It's, I still argue that we're sports studies and sport management is a subset of sports studies as a whole. We have sports sociology, sports psychology, so on and so forth. Um, but as we know, name, naming something has power yeah. and we're leaving out our athletes by not providing opportunities for them to also pursue an academic field that is going to align with what they want to do professionally. And because of that, there is going to be um, some uh, misalignment in the intentions and endeavors. And we're, having, we're seeing these issues now where you've got athletes going in these majors that are quote-unquote easy majors or aren't as rigorous, so to say, and not taking it seriously and then getting the degree if they, if they do finish um, in an area that has nothing to do with what they want to do professionally or don't know what to do. And so that's one of the major issues that's really been prevalent. And
0: a lot of that has to do with this academic clustering, as it's called. What can we do, aside from what's going on with the academy, how do we support student athletes? What what should people be advocating for? In one sense, we need to
1: look at how they're socialized. Um, As we completely understand, our identity development formation is very much so impacted by how we're socialized, with our environments, like who we're around and so forth. It has to start really early to value more than just sports in the sense of that athletic identity doesn't necessarily become the salient identity um i'm all for someone wants to be early on they wanted their goal is to be a a athlete a football whatever athlete um, volleyball track and field whatever that's what they want to do let's support them but let's also help them see that there are other areas so valuing education as we know, especially in the U.S., we're, because we're so unique in other countries, you can, if you show promise early and you look like you're going to be something special in your relative respective sport, well, you're going to, there's like universities for that. There's sports universities where you can go get high level training if you're of that um, caliber, um, still get your studies done, and the government. We're one of the few nations where our government does not regulate our athletic entity. Um, it is a different sport bodies have their own governing bodies um, and so we have to look at how we're socializing our children early on on what their values are. We can support them but and that's kind of where my research ties in where I'm looking at academically and athletically high achieving black males who um, were athletes to really start understanding how do their experiences, and I'm right now kind of focusing on college, but also looking at the pre-collegiate experiences, those socialization experiences, what were the messages, um, what are the support, what are some of the behaviors and um, resources, and also things that they're internalized with that actually impact how they're developed holistically and how that can lead to certain life outcomes or desired outcomes. And so, again, those those, Early year socializations. One thing I can, I'm finding consistently is that um, these individuals, these young men, these young kings, were really taught to value education. Many of them that I've, I've gotten the chance to interview for aspects of research, um, a faith-based system was very much so important um, and was kind of the catalyst to their values and beliefs. And impacted how well they viewed sports and other opportunities in their life outcomes. But also with that too, some of them didn't start uh, sports or athletics until later on in their lives. And so those are some opportunities to really see, is it necessary? We hear how some of these football athletes or former athletes are like, I never want my child to play this sport. And what does that mean? How is it impacting? So we have to look at how we're socializing to that. And for me, that's kind of the number one thing is looking at the individual socialization because we know that now we have to start having conversations with our children even more, or I almost say now, kind of again, um, at a heightened level about what it means to hold certain identities, your racial identity for some, even to looking at their sexual orientation and gender. What does that mean? And educate ourselves. Well, we also have to look at too the intersectionality that comes with even being an athlete. And how do you view sports? If that's so salient, it can be salient, but not at the detriment
0: of other aspects of who they are. So I really want to know because I'm always interested in you know, what, what folks are talking about. So how do mm-hmm. we change the discourse? Because many of us are trained to believe that, you know, athletes are invincible, you know, they're they're not affected by things that happen in general society. How do we change the way we talk about that and how do we shift the narrative? That has been an effort for years
1: that, um, definitely the past decade or so. And so it's it, it ties into what uh, Dr. Sean Harper had helped Um, promote and corns anti-deficit framework. Uh, We need to look at things, and that's kind of what I'm looking to do is, you know, build off of um, those who come before me and look at how are we holistically developing but from an anti-deficit standpoint. As we already know, most of the literature talks about um, athletics and their identities and aspects from more of a deficit standpoint. So we need to change that. Even theories used, I mean, In some sense, I mean, I hate to say it, but yes, critical race theory has an aspect to it that is somewhat from a deficit standpoint. Um, Not necessarily intentionally. It's it's A lot of times it's how people are using it. Um, And other prominent theories and literature um, to look at the intersectionalities that come with being an athlete. So it can be about race and so forth. Um, And so that's kind of the first part. We have to not come in from negative. I mean, even one of the theories I'm utilizing my research and want to build off of this scholar identity model um, from Dr. Goodman Whiting, he doesn't really talk about the athletic identity and when he does mention it in one of his papers, it is somewhat that athletic identity can be detrimental to developing the scholar identity, which his model and um, conceptual theory looks at um, gifted black males and aspects that really shape who they are um what are the tenets that cultivate this scholar identity? And so I want to really position the sense that we need to look at, hey, you can have this dual identity of being an, an athlete and a scholar and not have it conflict. And so we just have to really work in and reframing. And so finding new ways. And so if, if people are looking at, you know, the experiences, I mean, always talk about a lot of times black men, you're looking at black women, that the athlete, the things they go through are so much more exacerbated because of how women as a whole are viewed in society or have been. Um, And so we need to look at what are the ways in which the conversation about your experiences and who they are, what is being said by the quote unquote canon, those who are highly cited or those who are often cited. Because once we look at that, let's challenge that and find ways to reframe and reshape it. Um, And like the popular term, reimagine. You know, I'm really trying to reimagine what it is to do the work to support Black males. We talk about constantly Black males, you know, they're criminalized, demonized, um, right from birth. I mean, the school to prison pipeline, all that stuff. But we don't talk about it. There's still those that other times like myself where I'd have to go to study hall when I went to my first school. Because my coaches knew what school it came from. And since you're high school, if you have over a 92 GPA at the end of your junior year and you maintain that, you graduate with a degree conferred by the University of Pennsylvania. So I have a Bachelor of arts degree from high school. I don't have a high school diploma. I have a Bachelor of arts. Um, and so I've come from very privileged educational backgrounds. So when we look at the intersectionality kind of is about who they are, we need to really reframe that. Like for me, I didn't want to be a high level athlete. Uh, my coaches wanted me to, they always said, remember saying, you know, get serious. What do you mean serious? I care about what I do, but it's not all that I care about. If I win, if I lose, it's still going to be the end result. Um, and so we just have to look at how we're looking to support individuals and let's think broader. Because, again, had I bought into at times the messages I was receiving from individuals and about what it means to be successful, you know, I didn't go to Indiana, I could have walked on there for track and field. And I didn't because I knew if I did this, you know, they had one of the best jumps coaches in the world at the time. Um, and he said, I can walk on. So that was already a privilege, um, even though I was hurt and kind of went backwards, but at least there was potential promise that he saw something. Had I gone there, I would have had, this would have had to be more of a job. I would have had to put more into it than I was willing to. I wanted to have more of a college experience. I wanted to enjoy it more. I didn't want athletics to be just it. I didn't want to be known as Dex the athlete. I want to be known as Dex who does athletics or does sports. And so that's what's really important about how we're framing the conversation for these individuals. We can't just look at them as just this one part of them. We have to look at them as a whole, who are they as a person? And even having those conversations of how we're supporting and framing it because we are more than just this one part of who we are. You know, yeah, I'm I'm Dex from Philly, that's an athlete, that's X, Y, and Z, and so on and so forth. All that makes up who I am. And if it wasn't for the ability that my parents and close family members and mentors provided me to really discover that, I probably never would have had no other student that I had an agency to really go about doing these things.
0: So it sounds like you play a few different roles in the solution, right? You're you're part advocate, you're part researcher, you're part activist. What else could others be doing, or better yet, not doing to support the cause?
1: Definitely. So um, it depends on the level. Again, early on, um, I think it really is important, as I mentioned, about how we're about what what are the values that we're instilling into our children. Um, what are the messages? And so. That's the one part as they get older. So yeah, one of those opportunities for them to be enriched, as I mentioned before, and to bring back to um, arts and culture in Philly, really helped shape who I am. And so I valued creativity. I valued that stimulation that you got from hearing a piece of music, or looking at a particular painting and understanding, oh, that's more Cubism. Um, that's realism and so all these things and so the intellectual curiosity was instilled within me without me even realizing it. Um, Those are ways in which we really can provide a more holistic well-rounded experience um, and opportunities for our youth to develop and grow and also to be more critical. One thing I feel that we're not doing enough in the school system is teaching children how to be critical. Um, A lot of it is memorization and regurgitation. That ain't it, because if they pursue higher level academic work, then you're expected to be critical. And it's like, wait a minute, I thought I can just read this, memorize it, and kind of tell you what it is, and that's it. No, some fields are a little different, but business and other stuff, it's it's it's, it's at least when I was in school. Um, I don't feel like I had that as much, um, but then again, it's, it's also something that, you know, that's how I interpreted it. Um, Another thing we need to look at doing is, again, coming from an anti-deficit standpoint. So not looking at individuals from this negative light or just focusing on the negative. It's not about, oh, let's be bubbly, rainbows, unicorns, positive. It's just pulling back some and not necessarily perpetuating these stereotypes that are there. Um, You know, Black women ain't always angry. Um, you know, black males don't necessarily, are always aggressive. And if they're not aggressive, it doesn't necessarily emasculate them. You know, you can be a soft, more effeminate male, and not be queer. Um, and so it, it's kind of looking broader. we need to get out of this binary thinking. Either you're athletic or you're not athletic. No, you're, everyone's some sort of athletic. Um, but again, it, it's all about the messages, it's all about the resources, the behaviors, the ways in which they're internalized. So what is the systems level? And so again, even with my own research, I take it from, or at least I'm attempting to, more of a systems level approach. <laughs> so from the individual micro level, so what is it about the individuals and who they are? Um, but then broader, what are the aspects in which history, broader society, um, their educational environment, their home environment? All of this provides information. And so what I'm hoping to do my research is not only provide profiles and stories to the individual, and so my research, uh, my dissertation is gonna be a multiple like, case study, particularly because I want to focus on the individual themselves. Um, and then I'm not doing a cross case. I'm not looking to across each case to find commonalities per se. Um, particularly because I want to honor the heterogeneity that exists, individuality that happens to the individual person, because their lived experiences, who they are, what they individually went through, help shape them. We need to stop looking at all Black people the same, all Black males the same, all Black women, all Black trans, everyone. No, that is an individual. And so that's really the key thing about what I'm trying to do in my work and my advocacy is honor the heterogeneity of the individual so we can better understand. Now there are some, there probably will be commonalities, and so looking throughout educational period, so what is it like when they were in um, before grade school? What are their grade school experience at that time? Who were instrumental? What kind of positions did they have? Um, how did they impact them? And then even high school, and then college, and then what did that lead to once they left college? And that's why I'm doing former athletes, particularly because that that dissonance that happens once they leave and where they really are able to think critically about their experiences. So most people may have an extra year or two in which they may go to a master's program or may graduate a little bit later. And so that's going to, they're still going to be somewhat in that undergrad experience. They may not have really processed and gotten over or moved forward in those experiences. I want people who've actually had some time out to think back and reflect. Also, use images, so let's use different mediums. My participants are capturing images or um, getting images that may have happened that they already have that reflect on their experiences, um, really speak to the important factors of their success, and that's also I'm getting for. What do they attribute? Too many times we make assumptions. We try to make inferences based on the data, so to say. Well, no, let's hear from someone else. What do you feel? Because a lot of my participants when I talk with them are like, I've never really thought about this or I've never even really been asked about that. And so that shows us that we're not really asking the ones that truly matter or asking them what has impacted them individually and in seeing. And so for those who are in athlete development in instance of athletic, athletic academic support and so forth. Um, yes, we can look at these um, models, the canon research like Tinto and so forth, and look at how aspects of their attrition things that we know are probably gonna possibly impact their ability to navigate, but I also ask them, tell me about you. What is your background? What have you been through? Because what we need to do is develop that trust, especially in the black community, and I mean not just the black community, even our Spanish communities and these communities of color. Trust is the only way for buy-in. I'm not going to listen to someone I don't trust. I'm going to keep you beyond arm's length, especially now in COVID. It may be about three arm's length. <laughs> um, you know, Miss Corona Renee Jenkins trying to get too close. But we need to actually understand from them. We need to trust them. We don't need them to trust us. We need to start um, getting their trust because once someone trusts you they'll do whatever they can to support you and they'll buy into the efforts. And then once they buy in, it's going to then spread because it's always going to be, those who are some of the best athletes a lot of times are the leaders on, on within team or so forth. And so, yes, we know we go for those people, but are we doing it just because they're, they have this position of power and influence? When we look at those who don't fit the mold or the, the majority of the group, the norm, they feel left out. You know, we think that those who are academically successful athletes don't need support. Well, no, we quickly learned they can turn, they could be the opposite. I know of an athlete that we had on a team that I um, coached on. This individual came in, strong grades, almost had, a, I think she either had a 1,300 or 1,400 SET, um, pretty strong uh, testing for the state and so forth. That person almost failed out the first semester. And wound up almost uh, leaving the institution. Actually, I think they did. Um, Was there something we could have done better? I still to this day wonder, hmm, what is it about that? What what could have been done? Some of that also is that fact that obviously it was the first time they were away from home and that really weighed heavily on them and that experience. And it just probably wasn't the right place for them for what they needed to be successful within their first couple of years. But that's the thing. We have
0: to think outside of the norm. The thing that, I've adopted in a lot of the equity work that I do it it follows the the mantra from the disabilities rights movement there's there's nothing about us without us and yes. we have to center whatever the community is that we're looking to impact in our work so I'm glad to hear that you've adopted a similar approach when it comes to athletes you know it's not a matter of I'm on the outside observing creating solutions advocating uh creating new data standards without taking into consideration the community that's being impacted by everything you're doing. I mean, I think that's essential to all the work Mm -hmm. that we do.
1: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that's what's made me effective um, because I also, um, one of my roles here at UGA is um, the Graduate Assistant for Academic Success within the Office of Institutional Diversity. And so I coordinate our African American males initiative program or black men's program as I like to say to be more inclusive um but I've also coordinated our Hispanic Latinx program Um, one of the years I've been this is my third year and uh, now another academic success program I have and so what that's helped teach me is like how are we looking at DEI broadly too in these individual communities and especially I learned so much from coordinating the, what's called the Movimiento Latino program, the Hispanic Latinx one, because it really taught me about how within the Hispanic Latinx community, how much important community is and family, and where that buy in comes from. That, you know, a lot of times it's whoever's the, the, the old, like the, the parent or the grandparent within the family. And that's one thing you do learn in coaching and recruiting and stuff is. A lot of times the child made the decision, but you find out who really had the decision. Is it the child or is it the parent, the grandparent? Whoever has the power, you you get to know them and you got to you gotta sell them, so to say. Um, I've had athletes were, uh, you know, one of them well, was a single mother. Um, not them, but um, his mother was a single mother Um, and they had a little younger sibling. And I still remember to this day, unfortunately it was my last year, but an individual wound up coming set, but she came into my office and told me, "Why should I? Why should I trust you with my child coming here?" Her son for a couple of years, and he—I mean, it was kind of a done deal. But it may not have been a done deal because even with financially, because I mean, they fortunately have the means that if, if this—I mean, we we're a state school. If she won, if he wanted to go here, whatever it is, the, she she's financially able to help make it work. So it's not just about the financial aid part, which is the reason why I love Division Three is you don't have to worry about scholarships holding over athletes. But I had to gain her trust. Black community, we can, we can real recognize as real. I, I'm not going to sell. Um, not that I was trying to elude anyone else but, or lead them on, but you can see through. What, and I had to speak authentically and be like, listen, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. Whatever you may have heard about someone else or this and that, like, I'm going to do the best I can to be there for the person. You know, college can be a really dangerous space just because there's so much freedom. And that's just the thing. How are we going to show up for these athletes?
0: How do people keep up with you and your research and any other work that you're doing?
1: So I am on social media. It is my name, Marcus Dexter. Um, I do have a website, which is marcusrdexter.com. I try to be very authentic. So my Twitter account, you'll, it could go from seeing some type of retweet or post or or, or a quote that I may share or image That or something that's going on in my life, or it could be a comment back to one of my friends, something laughing. And I I think that's what's important. We need to normalize what it means to be a researcher, what it means to have education, what it means to be a a human being, so to say. And so I don't want to overly cultivate, uh, at least right now, until I get a different position where it may be essential for me um, or needed. But at least for right now, like I'm still a student, but I'm emerging, like I want people to be able to connect because there's too many times you're like oh my gosh there's Sean Harper I'm not going to speak even though we're Brad brother or here's so-and-so there's Terrell Strayhorn or here's so-and-so and And it's like they're human beings, individuals too we need to normalize what it is to be known so to say and so that's why I try to be very transparent um my Instagram's private only because like there are a lot of Bots out there. and It's annoying. If someone else tries to get me to buy some hair weave, I may just create a whole new account. But yes, definitely online. Um, I'm not all into the whole publishing world. Like I've had some things published. I've been fortunate from blog posts to first author pieces and journals and um, practitioner publications. That's not the world, the life I want per se. Um, I believe I believe in the the public sector. I believe that the work I do and the knowledge I'm obtaining, how I can impact society, operationalize and solidarity for those who are marginalized and on the margins of society. Like to me, doing practitioner-based work informed by the scholarly work is important. And so, yeah, especially if I do go more towards, I do want to do faculty uh, and within that route, those standards of excellence are based upon publications Um, And so I will go through that, but I I truly believe in actually interacting with people, being hands-on. Like writing in academia is, has so many um, underlying issues or a lot of isms that come up when I think about it. And so, you know, I can't have a, I can't be in dialogue with the people who need it the most um, if I'm just publishing in academic spaces. And so for me, I'm trying to find, I'm continually to identify and engage in ways to uh, connect with those who can be supported by my work.
0: Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with as just a key takeaway from today's episode?
1: Yeah. So I, I think what's one thing I really want to take away is really how we are viewing each other um, and going back to that um, heterogeneity versus um, homogeny. And so when you're looking to cultivate change, how, yes, it can be within a group, um, even with a marginalized group, but you've got to look at the individuals. Um, we remember the legends, the legends of everything are always individuals and something about them. Well, that can be said the same for those who don't, you know, um, we always remember Dr. King. We remember Malcolm X. We remember Rosa Parks, um, but there are so many people who are also part of those movements, um, like Bayard Rustin, who aren't as popularly known, um, but were catalysts. And so it's important that when you're, any type of, you're engaging any type of work that's going to affect change, make sure you center the individual in that work as you, you try to galvanize the, the overall group as a whole. Um, and so hopefully that'll help us lead more towards recognizing and honoring the individuality and distinctiveness of who we are instead of this collective group identity as being the sole salient aspect of who we are.
0: Well, good brother, I appreciate your time tonight to talk about what's passionate for you.
1: Yes, Any anytime, like I said. Um, those who know me know. I'm here for the cause and for the people. And so if I can ever be of assistance to anyone, never hesitate to reach out.
0: And there you have it. The experience of student athletes, in many cases, you see there's a lot of overlap. And this is just another population that we should probably pay a lot more attention to as we're addressing disparities on campuses. I am Grateful to Marcus for sharing his time, of course. And also, though you you probably heard the back and forth around the food, that's a majority of our conversations, actually, um, talking about recipes, different techniques. And so if you ever need to be inspired, please hit him up, look up his page, because there's always some culinary treat that he's sharing. I do want to make sure I go over our church announcements. So as you recall, we did move to a two episode a month structure, and I'm already breaking that rule with the community of practice episode that will be premiering next week. I'm really excited to shift the conversation a little bit. I do love the personal interviews. We now have three experts that will be sharing some of their knowledge and their talents on a specific subject. So really excited for that. Also, follow us on social media. We've got too many pages now, so there's no excuse. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. And we now have a listserv that is live. And so if you are into the social media thing, we've got a way for you to find us. And before I wrap up, I just want to give a special shout out to my podcasting brothers because they keep me on my toes and this goes out to Trey and Chris because anytime I see them doing something it's like okay I got to step it up and I think that mutually reinforcing relationship that we have we're constantly trying to get better so that we can make each other better so shout out to y'all and the work that y'all doing so if you're not familiar chris is the retired but back again jordan of podcasting that is the hip-hop social worker podcast and trey is also responsible for the everybody relax podcast i will give you the full introduction but i can't say it as well as he does Um, be on the listen though because you might be hearing from them again soon on the equity matters podcast and so until we meet again as always take care of yourselves mask up stay six feet away from the person next to you And remember, equity matters.